I saw a piece of yours performed. I mean, I've seen many of your pieces performed, but I have one in particular, a large scale work. I think it was in Geffen Hall in, um, in New York. And I, I remember thinking, you know, because um, I'll just be honest, I'm always a little skeptical of the synthesis of various and sundry musical traditions. But yeah. I remember thinking, like, this is really working. But I also remember seeing you on stage and, and there was a traditional Indian instrumentalist and you were cueing him at various and sundry places. And like, you know, like, I mean, how are you keeping all of that going? How are you thinking about this, this synthesis? Because in my mind, it really worked. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, it's um, that was actually one of my first pieces for uh, uh, sitar and tabla and then, you know, Western classical ensemble. And I was, you know, just at the, the beginning of getting into my depth with with all of these things that now I, I, I do as just part of my practice. But it's, it's interesting because I always think of it like language. You know, sometimes you um, grow up and I grew up bilingual. So I grew up speaking English to, you know, the people that I knew in my outside life. And then my grandparents lived with me and they spoke Gujarati, which is a, a Indian language uh, from the region of Gujarat. And so it was interesting because I associate language with the people I'm speaking to. And so it's like, if I, if I talk to a person, there are people who I would only speak Spanish to or only speak Italian to. And immediately that person kind of evokes that way of communication. And so it was really interesting because you're right. I was sitting between the sitar and tabla player and I know how to be when I'm in an Indian classical setting. And then I also know how to be when I'm cueing a conductor or cueing, you know, members of a orchestra or a choir. And so it was really interesting because I noticed that my mind would almost go back and forth between these two musical languages. And then I, it's like my body would respond in the way that I would respond in that tradition. And I felt in that moment, you know, as composers, we're so, um, it's so rare that we get to actually be part of our own pieces as they're being made, unless you're, you know, actually a composer or performer, which I'm not. Um, but I actually felt these two traditions kind of flowing back and forth through me and that I was kind of the intermediary between the traditions. And I got to do that live in a way that I feel like I only get to do it, you know, offline when I'm actually writing the music. And yet it was harmonious. I mean, there wasn't like a sense that they were fighting for supremacy, you know, totally. I mean, it, it, it worked together. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's just something where I really thought about, okay, how is this person going to feel comfortable on the stage? And, and the idea is, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, um, creating places where people feel comfortable. And the, the thing is that inherently um, bringing any traditions together that are not, you know, typically brought together, there's going to be a large degree of discomfort. Like, of course, that's just going to be the, the case. And so what can you do not necessarily just to make people more comfortable for comfort's sake but to make people put them in a situation where they're able to kind of express their highest self and so I felt like me being there and me being kind of this intermediary allowed for everyone to uh, have their best form of expression and bring forward their best best self and share it with one another I'm talking to composer Rena Esmail and we heard the fourth movement of her work this love between us Prayers for Unity, or an excerpt thereof. I'll play more of that work in a little bit. Uh, it's a fascinating piece that, as I mentioned to Rena, I had heard, uh, had the good fortune to hear live at uh, Geffen Hall. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm Seth Bostead, and our guest on the program today is Rena Esmail. She is a uh, fabulous composer uh, with a lot of different influences, somebody that I think synthesizes a lot of interesting and, and, and disparate things in a really wonderful way and to create an original voice. And it was really nice to be able to catch up with her. She's somebody, uh, I think, like so many of us that I haven't talked to in a long time. So we had a wonderful conversation. I'll feature a lot of that conversation and as much of her music as I can on the program. Let's find out more about that oratorio that I opened up the program with. 
this oratorio was actually commissioned by um, the Institute of Sacred Music at Yale. And I mean, it's fascinating because even the commission came at such a, a, a important time in my life where, you know, I had done a Fulbright in India and I you know, spent a year studying Indian classical music there and living in India. And that was really the, the foundation of my Indian classical practice. And so, you know, in my mind, I was like, okay, I need to be able to go back to India every year. I need to be able to spend more time there. And so the minute I um, graduated with my, uh, did, did all my doctoral coursework, I thought, okay, let me figure out how to move back to India. And by and large, by the time I tried to move back, the government had changed. And because my family has um, ties to Pakistan, and I mean, a, a lot of families do in India, um, but um, we, I was not allowed to get the visa that I needed to go back and live there. And so at, at that point, and, you know, going forward, it's, very, very difficult for me to get back into the country. So basically, I had been at this point where I was trying absolutely everything. And finally, I remember it was this day, November 2nd, 2015, I just gave up. And I was like, this is it. I can't do this. I'm, I guess I'm just not going to be able to get back to this country. Totally heartbroken. And the very next day, Martin Jean from the Institute of Sacred Music emailed me and said, hey, we would love to offer you a commission to write a piece for uh, Yale Schola Cantorum, Juilliard 415, their Baroque ensemble, and um, a, a Indian uh, sitar and tabla player from Varanasi. Um, and I thought, this is cr a crazy commission because it seems like a thing that I would have put together, not like a thing that would exist already that, that I would be asked to do. Um, and it and basically that was the piece that actually took me back to India. And I was able to kind of get a visa and all because I was then going through uh, Yale's uh, agents and all, and it, it really helped. Um, so for me, this piece is you know, on one hand, it's about these these really big concepts of, you know, uh, being uh, whatever religion you are from, whatever you believe in, um, the, the religion is not telling you that you should be discriminating against other people. And here are all these places side by side and all these different major Indian religious traditions where it talks about being good to one another. So um, that was kind of the thesis of the piece. But then um, on a very personal level, it was like, you know, I want to connect these two places that are so dear and that are really home to me, but that are on literal opposite sides of the earth. And that really uh, the, the connection between them is becoming more and more tenuous, especially for people like me. And so um, I do this work because I need it, I think, the most. And then hopefully, you know, along the way, there, there are other people who also, you know, see the beauty and the connection between these cultures. Let's hear the first movement of this oratorio, this love between us, prayers for unity. I'm going to read us a little bit from Rena's program notes. She says, the piece is about unity. Its seven movements juxtapose the words of seven major religious traditions of India. Buddhism, Sikhism, Christianity, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Jainism, and Sufi Islam. And specifically how each of these traditions approaches the topic of unity, of brotherhood, of being kind to one another. I open the program with the fourth movement, Zoroastrianism. Let's go back and hear the opening, Buddhism, all beings tremble before violence. Here is the Yale Scala Cantorum, David Hill conducting Rabindra Goswami Sitar and Ramchandra Pandit Tabla.
When I was in high school, I was a pianist and I, I was really serious about playing the piano. Um, and I think the, the thing that was weird for me is that I loved music and I knew I could you know, understand it and I, I really got deep into it, but I was not a performer. Like I was someone who would just choke up when I was on stage and I just wasn't really good at performing. And so I didn't realize until much later in life that I could have a relationship to music that didn't involve performing. Um, I'm kind of a perfectionist. I like to make sure everything is just perfect before I put it out into the world. World. So when I discovered that composing was actually a job that people had, it made me really um, excited. So, I mean, it was interesting because very quickly, the minute I discovered that I could compose, um, you know, basically the next year I was going to Juilliard as an undergrad uh, for composition. And so, you know, the, the basically from that point on, it was a pretty, pretty straight shot as far as, you know, uh, having the, the career and all that I do today. But um, it was interesting because in the middle there, I think I had, um, I had gone so far so fast that once I got out of my undergrad, I had these, this moment of like, what am I doing? Like, is this really what I want to be doing? Is this really right for me? Um, and so I, I took about four years off of school um, after my undergrad kind of. Um, and I think that was when I really started to explore things deeply. I, I learned the violin from scratch. I taught theory and ear training at Manhattan School of Music. I, you know, really started to discover Indian music during that time because I was really trying to understand you know, what my relationship was to the art form. And um, yeah, then when I finally went back to, to do my master's, I, um, I, I really was on a, a straight shot to, to doing what I do now. So yeah, in your undergrad, I mean, do you feel like that was a time of um, almost a preparation time? Like, like I mean, do, do you still have any of those pieces out in the world? Or have you kind of said, okay, that was a more of a, a kind of finding myself time? 
Yeah, you know what's interesting is that the, some of the pieces I wrote before my undergrad are actually out in the world. Like some of my audition pieces for for Juilliard, I I they're still performed these days. Um, but the pieces that I wrote during my undergrad, I think largely I don't um, really identify with them anymore. I think because. I, I'm not sure that I really found much resonance in my undergrad and I'm not sure that, you know, my teachers and I really saw eye to eye and I learned a lot, you know, I certainly learned um, a lot about the nuts and bolts about how music worked and how the, the field worked and what uh, various different tastes were, but I don't know that I really identified with the music that I was writing or that I was writing from a place of true um, expression for myself. So yeah, the music both before and after my undergrad is the music that, that is still in the world today. Yeah, my own experience as a composer over the last like 15 years has, and, and uh, you know, I mean this with, with respect to everybody that I ever studied with, but has been a process of just sloughing off a lot of the things that, that were foisted upon me in school and saying, because a, a lot of what, what people were saying was that complexity was always good and, and that simplicity was always bad, you know, and I really mean that. Like, you know, if I wrote a simple piece, my teacher would say, okay, you need to replace every third eighth note with a dotted 16th and maybe make this a nested tuplet and da da da, you know, and, and make this, this harmony more complicated. And by the end, it wasn't recognizable and it wasn't me. And I've just been slowly going, no, I wanted that original idea all along. I mean, how, how, how would you react to that? Do you feel similarly? Yeah, I mean, I remember that there was this point in my undergrad where I, you know, I, I think you can see um, if you look at uh, just my writing style, you can see the connection when I first started writing to the music that I'm writing now. But there was this moment where I took this piece and it was Win Quintad. It was something that I was super proud of, just the very beginnings of things. And this teacher looked at it and said, you know, you don't want to write like that, do you? And I thought, I did. I did want to write like that. Uh, not sure if I should still want to. And at that point, you know, you're so young and you don't realize that you can say, yes, I absolutely do want to write like this. Thank you for inquiring. Um, but so so I think it did. I, I felt that same need towards having to be so complex to show how clever I was. And, you know, obviously, if you're a composer, you know, you're usually a very smart person who knows how to, you know, synthesize a lot of information very quickly. But you don't go into music to show people how smart you you are right you go into music to actually emote and to be able to um convey things to other people and to be able to communicate and so what i've realized actually is that there's the kind of simplicity that's the facile simplicity when you don't really know what to do and you're kind of imitating something you move into this phase of complexity which is like exploration of things in the best possible sense and then sometimes you come back to this new synthesis and you become you there there are a few things that you really like that you pull out and you kind of discard everything that isn't quite working and you reach this new simplicity that is not um it's not facile it's kind of this sophisticated um take on things and so i feel like my music is, is moving back towards simplicity in many ways because I think that's the, the most direct way to communicate. Presumably when people commission you, they know um, your music, they, they have a sense of what they're going to get, you know, they're not going to commission you hopefully to write a new complexity piece. Um, <laughs> Probably not, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm going to after this phone call, but please no. do, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll be in touch. <laughs> It'll be good exposure. I don't have any money. It'll just be exactly, good exactly. great, great. I, I'm really looking to get into the new complexity world. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, with that in mind, though, like what, what kinds of um, things are you interested in right now? Like what, what are your musical interests? What's, what's filtering its way into your music? You talked about um, Indian music, discovering that. I mean, um, talk to me about the, the kinds of things that you're doing right now. 
Yeah. So, I mean, like you said, one of the things that I love is working with Indian classical musicians. And this is something I've been doing for at least the past decade, if not a little longer now. Um, and, you know, it just stemmed from this desire to actually explore the music of my own culture and, um, you know, see how it resonated for me. And, you know, it really started as something like, oh, you know, there's this Indian form and there's this Western form. Let me see if I can put them together and very kind of like try this with this, you know, and just see what works. And now I think it's almost become its own language. It's, like its own pigeon language where there are just elements of different things that I like that have become a synthesized style in, in my mind. Um, but the thing that I love also is just working with people who come from different places and have different perspectives and kind of bringing those perspectives together. And so that's true for Indian music um, and Western classical music, but it's also true, you know, with people who are kind of coming from different demographics, whether it's, you know, students and, and their teachers or students and professionals or like people who are kind of from different parts of a, a society within a same, the same city. Um, and just, you know, you can create as, as a composer, you're creating these spaces um, where you're deciding who's coming into dialogue with one another and, you know, the kind of dialogue that they get to have with one another. And so in essence, you know, you can kind of control um, the way that people interact with one another and you can choose uh, how that all plays out. So um, yeah, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how we are with each other as humans and then how that translates into music. Let's hear another movement of Rena's oratorio, This Love Between Us. This is movement two, Sikhism. How can we call someone evil? And this features mezzo-soprano Adele Dominguez.
So it's one thing when you're actually incorporating traditional Indian instruments into the um, the ensemble. But what about, you know, a, a piece like your piano trio or something? I mean, do you feel like, are you using any carnatic elements in that? Are, are there like, you know, beat cycles or anything that, that are making its way into when you're, when you're only writing for Western instruments? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I kind of work a- across the spectrum all the way from just working with only Indian classical musicians and only Western classical musicians in their own traditions, and then kind of everything in between. So the piano trio is, is a much later piece. I wrote it in, um, I wrote it in 2019, but in all honesty, I was writing it for years and years. It was one of those pieces that just took forever to write. And I find that sometimes about chamber music, you think because there's less instruments it's going to take less time than orchestra music. And for me, it definitely does not. It's really, it's the ground where I think I can experiment the most because I also know that, you know, players who are playing chamber music are going to rehearse it in a really different way where they can get very, very deeply into it. And so that allows me to go more deeply and, you know, kind of, of reach a little bit further. And so, um, yeah, on my piano trio, there are definitely elements of rag. There are places that are that are in rag, there are places that are in thal, in the beat cycle. And then um, there are places that are just very indicative of, you know, um, references to things like Mendelssohn and Ravel piano trios and the Western classical canon as well. So, um, yeah, I think when I'm working with only uh, Western classical musicians who have Western classical training, there's kind of a behind the scenes thing that happens, especially before the premieres of those pieces, where almost any melody will start with me, you know, sitting at the piano, just singing that melody myself. And so usually I'll make recordings or I'll work live with the players and send them recordings of me singing. Um, And so they can actually hear uh, what the source material is. And then it's like, they parse it in their instruments in a specific way. And eventually after many, many performances, there starts to become a way that people play it. But I, I really just, put the source material out there. And, and um, I hope that the, the premier players that I work with will have a sense of how to begin to parse it for their instrument. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, was that a commission or was that a piece you just wanted to write? Um, kind of both. Um, it was technically a commission from Town Hall Seattle. Josh Roman um, commissioned it. But I remember he came to me, you know, probably three years before that and said, hey, what do you want to write? And I'm like, I've always wanted to write a piano trio. And it goes back to my days in, in high school when I was a pianist. Um, one of the, the best and most amazing um, experiences I ever had was that I won this competition where I got to play a movement of uh, the Mendelssohn Piano Trio with two members of the LA Phil, who I think are still in the LA Phil, one just retired. Um, but, you know, getting to be a whatever 17 year old kid and playing with these amazing uh, consummate chamber musicians really opened my eyes to what was possible as a musician. And so I think from that moment on, I thought, okay, I really need to figure out how to write a piano trio. And um, so this was, this was that. The first movement is in a rag called um, Malhar. And this is kind of a family of, of Indian ragas. You know, ragas are, are different from scales in the sense that they both have kind of a way that you navigate up and down, but then ragas also have so much more in them. Like they're associated with maybe a season of the year. There's a certain kind of feeling and emotion that goes along with them. So this Malhar family is of ragas, uh, kind of beckons rain. And so um, that was just something that I really uh, wanted to kind of convey in this, this movement. Um, it's very light. It's very, um, I don't know, I mean, there, there is, a, you can uh, see the connection into like Ravel and Impressionism and all that is really in the first movement.
That's the first movement of Piano Trio by Rena Esmail. We heard Susanna Bartal, piano, Vijay Gupta, violin, and Peter Myers, cello. I'm going to play, uh, it's a four-movement work, so I'm going to play the uh, third and fourth movements, and let's hear Rena talk about them, and then hear the same performers performing. The third movement is um, is kind of like a, a wild romp. It's very, very uh, Mendelssohn scherzo-y, um, and it's in a rag called um, Paidavi. Uh, so sorry, in a rock called Paida, uh, yeah, no, Paidavi, exactly. Um, and so the fourth movement is, is uh, uh, references Paidav, which are two completely different drugs. Um, but th this one kind of has, um, uh, it actually has a quote from an Indian classical Tarana, which is a very kind of short, fast piece in it as well, but, you know, just very light and, and um, you know, uh, dancey. <laughs> Thank you. 
And um, then the fourth movement, yeah, heavy, uh, like I said, has has uh, these kind of augmented second-y feeling to it. Um, and it's a little bit hard because in um, Western classical music, we kind of use augmented seconds to feel very um, like, oh, this is like, quote unquote, Eastern music. And so it's hard to, to, to understand what uh, Western classical musicians are thinking of, um, of augmented seconds because, uh, you know, in Indian classical music, they use them completely, you know, without any any irony or anything. Um, and so there's that. And then it kind of opens up into this rag called Charukeshi, which is almost like we would consider it half major and then half natural minor. So you hear this polarity and this play between these, these two things that we consider to be so different in Western classical music and in Indian classical music are, uh, can be part of the same thing.
Movements three and four of the Piano Trio by Rena Esmail, and we heard Susanna Bartol piano, Vijay Gupta violin, and Peter Myers cello. I'm going to go out with one more piece from the oratorio, This Love Between Us. This is the penultimate movement, movement six, Jainism, If the Mind is Sinful. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Find out more at acmusic.org. And for Relevant Tones, I'm Seth Bosted. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks to Rena Esmail for being a guest on the program today.